Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Sixteenth of February, Wednesday, twenty one fifteen. Storm Dudley batters the boat. The world roars and shakes with a crashing frenzy of noise, like bed linen whipping and cracking on a gale harried washing line. Curtains of rain, laced with twigs, sluice against the windows. It's a night for wild souls who can match this night storm for storm and who run as free as starlight and hawthorn blossom. This is the narrowboat Erica, riding on the back of two fierce storms and narrow casting into a wild night. Welcome aboard. It's lovely to see you. I think we have proof positive that the Atlantic weather systems listen to this podcast. Because no sooner had I uploaded last week's episode where I stated that although we'd had a few storms so far this winter, we'd certainly experienced nothing anywhere near approaching the categories of those that I talked about in that episode. When we began to get some warnings of some extremely depressions in the Atlantic. And it was almost as if it was saying, you haven't had any proper storms yet, Richard? Hold my beer. Storm Eunice, 6.40. First light. A flock of jackdaws scorching downwind, like a fistful of pebbles flung into a tumultuous grey sea. This is just the precursor, the outlying waves of the coming storm. And even now, more hens stick to the banks, scurrying among the dry rattle of reeds. To the west, the sky is lighter. Patches of clear, cloudless sky, not quite blue yet. Two pigeons cut low, tracking the sheltered pools of air, hedge-hopping. Earlier, I'd watched one of them climb up, her body visibly jolted by a blasting gust of wind blown backwards a short way. A magpie call. She drops low, darting downwards into the alder and hawthorn brush. Her mate, flying along the field, chest high, joins her. Later in the day, when the brunt of the storm hits us, even the very few crows that have ventured out loop low threading their way from tree to tree, hedgerow to hedgerow, keeping out of the blast. 
snatches of birdsong, dawn chorus, whipped and tossed by the wind. And then, from over in the east, a large flock of gulls wheel and carve the air, diving and swimming the aerial rapids. All the time, more of them join, and it's difficult not to feel an exhilaration in the moment. Their wings, like knives, fully outstretched, balanced, hanging on a gust, blading the currents, a whirling rush of an aerial ballet or dervish dance. All day, the storm raged and prowled. The wind direction had veered slightly north, and so, unlike Storm Dudley on Wednesday night that hit us bow on, we were now a little more protected. Carl and Jan at the end took the brunt of it. And for us, although the wind was stronger, it was not so noisy. Just the roaring breakers of the wind racing and raking through the trees and hedgerows, flailing the surface of the water into crested wavelets, upon which the ducks bobbed and bounced. And the boat gently rocked and swayed with its customary groans and creaks. And out here, on the well deck, under the cratch, the canvas rattles and bangs and cracks with every strike of the wind. And if you close your eyes, it does sound so much like a sea in the storm when the ocean breakers roar. It's an image used by Ted Hughes to great effect in his poem The Wind. The Wind by Ted Hughes This house has been far out at sea all night. The woods crashing through darkness. The booming hills. Winds stampeding the fields under the window, floundering black astride and blinding wet. Till day rose. Then under an orange sky the hills had new places. And wind-wielded blade-light, luminous, black and emerald, flexing like the lens of a mad eye. At noon, I scaled along the house-side as far as the coal-house door. Once I looked up, through the brunt wind that dented the balls of my eyes, the tent of the hills drummed and strained its guy-rope. The fields quivering, the skyline a grimace, at any second to bang and vanish with a flap. The wind flung a magpie away, and a black-backed gull bent like an iron bar slowly. The house rang like some fine green goblet in the note that any second would shatter it. Now, deep in chairs, in front of the great fire, we grip our hearts 
and cannot entertain book, thought, or each other. We watch the fire blazing and feel the roots of the house move, but sit on, seeing the window tremble to come in, hearing the stones cry out under the horizons. And there's that sense of security and yet also of caution, of awareness. And even now I keep wondering, have I left anything on the roof? What are the ropes doing? Do I need to check them? Did I put everything away? And yet, here, it feels secure. And even when the rain comes, and I can feel on my bare arms spray that's been driven through the gaps in the wood of the cratchboard, it feels safe. It feels good. And this heightened awareness, even if all you have over the top of you is a flapping canvas, this heightened awareness of inside and outside is captured beautifully by Lewis McNeese. And like Hughes, for McNeese, the indoors does not necessarily symbolize security and comfort and peace. But in his poem, that danger, that sense of turmoil comes from a different quarter. Indoors, the tang of a tiny oil lamp. Outdoors, the winking signal on the waste of sea. Indoors, the sound of the wind. Outdoors, the wind. Indoors, the locked heart and the lost key. Outdoors, the chill, the void, the siren. Indoors, the strong man, pain to find his red blood cools, while the blind clock grows louder, faster. Outdoors, the silent moon, the garrulous tides she rules. Indoors, Ancestral curse come blessing. Outdoors, the empty bowl of heaven, the empty deep. Indoors, a purposeful man who talks across purposes to himself in a broken sleep. It was around midday that the storm hit its peak and... Penny and I sat inside and listened to it roar around us. Penny a little bit unnerved by some of the movements on the boat.
We went for an early afternoon walk, and the sky was raked clear of birds. But I did see our three swans gliding serenely down a very choppy canal, as if it was some spring or summer's day, totally unconcerned even though the wind was ruffling their feathers. In an ungainly way, clambered out, Cyril having to use his wings to balance, and started to forage the grass together. And the stoves were a little bit more of a challenge and needed a bit more attention. The one in the bow was running really hot and I was having to really keep the vents almost totally closed, whilst the one here in the stern of the boat was getting quite considerable blowback at times and a bit of smoke in the boat, which is not good. So that necessitated having the windows open, but the temperatures wasn't cold, weren't cold so it wasn't too much of a problem. Later on, as evening began to fall, Penny and I went for another slightly longer walk, and this time it was in the gloaming, and the wind had begun to recede, just leaving odd times of buffeting rain squalls. And it was then I noticed that one of my pole star trees had blown down. They had been my silent companions on my morning walks, ever since we were here. And both the trees had that sense of timeless solidity. Both must have been well over a hundred, if not two hundred years old, and perhaps a lot more, and may even have predated the canal. And something living like that, spanning such time under this wheeling constellation of years, I find somehow reassuring that they create a still point of stability in this volatile, shifting, fast-changing world, an anchor, the needlepoint on a compass, a pole star, something that retains that sense of direction when sometimes things seem to be in turmoil. I've never actually been up close to them. They've always been a few hundred yards in the distance. Because proximity is not what I got from them, not what I drew from them. Their presence was enough there on the skyline, acting as a constant in that unfathomable equation of my journey. And there was an immediate sense of loss, an immediate sense of something missing. And again, I suppose that's the point. Any sense of constancy are going to be illusory. As soon as we try to grasp something, to, to stop it changing, to control it, then we begin to lose it. I will miss it, and I wish it hadn't fallen. The skyline will feel emptier now. Again, this is the proper course of things. Things change and shift. And it constantly surprises me about why we, I, 
find change so hard to handle at times. You'd, you'd think we'd be used to it by now. This is the natural train of events. And yet we do find it hard. And I, I would rather that it was still standing and would continue to do so for another hundred years. But if it had to fall, I'd rather it was done like this than be cut down for some vanity project or because it posed a risk to some new building development. And actually in the morning light, I could see a bit clearer and it's not quite as bad as it looked in the twilight last night. One larger limb is still intact, so it remains to be seen how it fares. And so my fallen-law, part fallen polestar, and Storms Dudley and Eunice, served again to remind us of the unyielding and sometimes devastating power of the wind and the brute strength of nature. And in doing so, it drives us back to the world of our ancestors, when the fragility of our lives depended on that fickle play of climate and weather. And it's therefore not surprising that our ancestors tried to lasso the elements with prayer and ritual. Small, flaring sparks of indomitable human spirit and resilience, mostly hopelessly trying to punch above our weight, but those acts of audacious faith in seeking to still the wind, to hold back the flood, thaw the frozen soils, to bring down rain. And so therefore, again, it's not surprising that the wind in antiquity was so closely associated with the divine. Within the pantheons of the gods, from cultures spread all over the globe, winds were represented from the famous Greek pantheon with Aeolus, the keeper of the winds, and the Anemoi, the wind gods, and a god for each of the four cardinal points, Boreas, the god of north wind and winter. Eurus, god of east and southeast winds. Notus, god of the south wind. And Zephyrus, the god of the west wind. Zephyrs, the gentle, warm breezes. And many of the other pantheons also include the four cardinal wind points on the wind rose. But some also include others. So in the Aztec culture, we have the west, the north, the east, the south winds, but we also have the god of breezes and also the god of the night wind and the hurricanes. And in the Philippines and others where we have monsoons and other types of seasons, we have the goddess of the monsoon winds. But also the narratives, the stories with which these gods and goddesses are caught up in tell us important lessons, warning us of the ambivalent and ambiguous nature of the wind. So within the Inuit cultures, we have Silapinua, the weather god who represents not just the breath of life, but who also lures children to be lost in the tundra. 
life-giving, life-destroying. And within the ancient Israelite culture, wind was associated with theophanies, those events when the divine figure of Elohim Yahweh, the God of Israel, breaks into human history. And then this is then taken up by the New Testament writers. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And this is captured so beautifully by the poem by A. A. Milne. It's from his collection of children's poems, Now We Are Six, and it's called The Wind on the Hill. The Wind on the Hill by A. A. Milne No one can tell me, nobody knows, where the wind comes from, where the wind goes. It's flying from somewhere, as fast as it can. I couldn't keep up with it, not if I ran. But if I stopped holding the string of my kite, it would blow with the wind for a day and a night. And then when I found it, wherever it blew, I should know that the wind had been going there too. So then I could tell them where the wind goes. But where the wind comes from, nobody knows. William Blake takes these themes and does something quite spectacular with them and very Blakeian. And in his poem, Mock On, Mock On, he lambasts the great thinkers of his day, Voltaire and Rousseau, uses the wind as metaphor, but I think also physically as a way of seeing the world. I don't think as far as Blake is concerned and knew, but seeing the world as it really is. Mock on, mock on by William Blake. Mock on, mock on, Voltaire, Rousseau. Mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again. And every sand becomes a gem, reflected in the beams divine. Blown back they blind the mocking eye, but still in Israel's path they shine. The atoms of Democritus and Newton's particles of light are sands upon the Red Sea shore where Israel's tents do shine so bright. And storms like these are perhaps, for so many of us, one of the few remaining opportunities of physically feeling the realities of the elements in their wild and savage power, and also beauty. Maybe that's why our papers and news feeds are filled with grinning people on piers and clifftops, shrouded with breaking spray. It's reckless and it's stupid, but it's also existential and elemental. People 
learning and experiencing the thrill and danger of encountering powers beyond themselves. Transcendent. Whether that's in a spiritual or ideological or even physical sense. Finding it in that wind-blown ocean spume that pours down upon them. Blake's Particles of Sand that transforms life into something altogether other and new. And storms remind us of our need for shelter and the joy that that feeling of safety and shelter can give us. But they also take us not just physically outside our homes, but outside ourselves, our lives, to something infinitely richer and deeper, something transformative. Storms are, are one of the very few events when the realities of our world come to us, often unbidden, rather than us going out to meet them on our own terms. And I know it can be humbling. It also can be exhilarating and awful in every sense of that word. But its message is always uncompromisingly clear, teaching us once again the lesson of Canute to his courtiers long ago. We cannot own this world, throw a bridle over its snout and lead it trotting behind us. Storms are when real nature comes into our domestic world. And even if only for a short while, transform it. There's an alchemy there. And I want to finish with John Betjeman's poem, Harrow on the Hill. It uses that most domestic of setting, the suburbs of commute about London. And as with the other poets that we've been listening to, uses the image of the wild, untamable ocean and the storm at sea. Harrow on the Hill by John Betjeman When melancholy autumn comes to Wembley and electric trains are lighted after tea, the poplars near the stadium are trembly with their tap and tap and whispering to me, like the sound of little breakers spreading out along the surf line when the estuaries filling with the sea. Then Harrow on the hill's a rocky island, and Harrow's churchyard full of sailors' graves, and the constant click and kissing of the trolley buses hissing is the level to the wheelstone turned to waves, and the rumble of the railway is the thunder of the rollers as they gather up for plunging into caves. There's a storm cloud to the westward over Kenton. There's a line of harbour lights at Perry Vale. 
Is it rounding rough pentire in a flood of sunset fire, the little fleet of trawlers under sail? Can those boats be only rooftops as they stream along the skyline in a race for port and padstow with the gale? This is a rather windswept Erica signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful, peaceful night. Sleep well. Good night. Temperature outside, 4.1 degrees. Inside, 26 degrees. Humidity, 83%. Dew point, 1 degree. Wind direction, west-northwest. Wind strength, 6 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1010.2 rising. Cloud cover, 91%. Cloud ceiling, 1600 feet. Precipitation, 5.8 millimeters. Moon phase, 88.7%. Waning gibbous. Day length, 10 hours, 13 minutes. Sunset, 1728. Skycasting, 713.